Welcome to another episode of University of Washington's Thrivecast, the podcast designed to help School of Medicine faculty thrive. I'm Trish Critic, and today we're joined by Dr. Fred Rivara. Dr. Rivara is a professor in the Department of Pediatrics and holds the Seattle Children's Guild Association Endowed Chair in Pediatric Research. I invited him here today for some other special titles that he has had. He was the editor of JAMA Pediatrics from the year 2000 to 2017. That's a really long time. And he was the founding editor of JAMA Network Open starting in 2018. So he is a very experienced editor and reviewer. And I invited you here today, Fred, to talk with me and our listeners about reviewing papers, because that's a big part of kind of what we do as academic faculty members. So thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm going to start off by just asking kind of an overarching question, which is, you know, as a junior faculty member, eventually, sometimes sooner than we expect, we get asked to review a paper. And I guess if you were talking to a junior faculty member, my first question is like, why should they say yes? Like, why should they engage in the, the activity of being a peer reviewer? Well, I think selfishly, it makes you a better writer. I think to review papers and seeing what the the, the pros and cons of a particular way of publishing something does make you a better writer. Um, it also makes you up to date as possible in your field because you're going to see material that is not going to be published for another six to nine months. So you can really be at the cutting edge of knowledge in your field. Um, It also can help to increase your own CV because oftentimes the editor will ask somebody to write a commentary or an editorial, and oftentimes it's going to be the reviewer. And if you eventually want to be on an editorial board, you have to put in your time and do some reviews. So there's lots of things that can help your career by agreeing to be a reviewer. Yeah, that's great. I think the, the help you and also help the community. I think every time I ask someone like why I should say yes, I'm going to also ask, when should I say no? So are there times when I shouldn't say I'll be a peer reviewer? Well, yes, there's lots of times when you shouldn't agree to do it. <laughs> First of all, if you feel like you can't do it within the deadline set by the journal. So the worst thing for me as an editor is to have somebody review something, agree to review something, and then be very late doing it or don't do it at all. So you need to make sure you have the time to do it. If you don't have the time to do a good job, don't do it. You certainly shouldn't do it if you have a conflict of interest. So if you know, you're know you a senior person and you have had been the mentor, or the active mentor for somebody, um, it's probably best for you not to review. Uh, hopefully, the editor will not ask you to review a paper of anybody in your same institution because that's mm-hmm. an inherent conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I think that it's good for you um, when you're starting out to figure out which are the journals that you feel like are going to be your homes, which are the ones that they're going to try to publish in, and try to be loyal to those journals and, and sort of review for those journals and not review for a bunch of others. So pick the two or three journals that you feel you're going to be most interested in publishing in and use those journals as ones to choose for reviewing. Yeah, I think that that's really great advice. As a, I also wear a hat as a senior deputy editor for a journal, and the, the reviewers who say yes but really don't have the bandwidth to do it are frustrating and eventually I don't ask them anymore. So I think it's a really nice piece of advice. And I really like the idea about the kind of home journal for me. um, That's the American Thoracic Society journals. And I've always said yes to the New England Journal of Medicine because I just think that's like a 
a high, a very high tier journal. So when I asked to review there, I, I say, yeah. So I, I appreciate that a lot. Um, so let's say that my answer is yes. I, I am going to go ahead and engage in peer review. For some of our junior faculty, and maybe even some mid-career faculty, I'm not sure, they haven't really been taught how to do a review, which um, we could talk about where that learning should happen. But before we do that, can you walk me through kind of how you approach doing a review of uh, of an article? Like, what's right. your strategy? So what I usually do is to first read the paper over um, mm-hmm. from back to, to from front to back and looking also the supplements because most papers nowadays have supplements. So um, and then after doing that, and it gives you a general sense of what the paper is all about is to really go through it carefully in each section and think about the introduction. Is it laying out the case for why this research question is important? Is the research question clear? Is there a specific hypothesis or not? And the introduction should not be too long. You know, we usually like to see introductions a couple of pages long and not longer than that. Mm-hmm. Um, although that depends a lot on the particular journal that you're you're um, working with. Secondly, then, is to really look at the methods. And, you know, the goal of the methods is really to help you as a reader understand exactly what they did. And if you had access to the same resources, would you be able to replicate what the authors did? So do they carefully describe what their patient population is, how they recruited patients? Um, if they use different measures, do they give you information about um, the validity of those measures that they use? Most importantly, are they clear about what's the primary outcome? Particularly, this is terribly important for a randomized controlled trial. What's the primary outcome that the authors are, um, are examining? And in, an exam- in a randomized controlled trial, you should go and check the clinicaltrials.gov and make sure that what they say in clinicaltrials.gov as the primary and secondary outcomes matches the primary and secondary outcomes that they have listed in the paper. And then go to the results and tables and figures in front of you. Can I, I ask you, can I interrupt you for one second? Yes. Before you go into the results, in the methods, I think for some people, particularly as they're starting to review, one of the things they feel in insecure about is like, I'm not a statistician and I don't know if the the approach to analyzing their data is the quote unquote right one. What do you advise people when they're like, I'm not so sure if I can assess the the statistics that this this is being proposed in the methods? Right. So, you know, we usually have two different kinds of reviewers for a paper. We have content reviewers and statistical reviewers. So the content reviewer, what we really want out of the content reviewer is to know, is this information novel? Is the research question important? Has it fit in with what is already known? Um, Are the measures the right ones? Are the results understandable? Versus a statistical reviewer is, are the methods valid? Were the analyses done correctly? Were the right tests used? Um, Is the design appropriate? Are the appropriate limitations acknowledged? So there's going to be two different kinds of reviewers. And if you are a content reviewer, Um, You can sort of go into the statistics as much as you can, but you can also say, I'm not an expert in this particular method. So somebody uses a, say, latent class analysis. You can say, I don't have any idea what that's about, and I can't judge that. 
I think that's really helpful because I think that liberates people from feeling like I can't be a reviewer because I can't I can't answer that question. That's somebody else's job. And I think it's good to empower people to say you can still be a really good content reviewer without necessarily knowing all the nuances of the strategies of statistics that they've used in the study. Um, anyway, I interrupted you. Go back to talking about so, the results. So to then looking at the results. You know, first of all, you want to make sure that the numbers are all the same or the numbers in the abstract, the same as the numbers in the narrative is the same as the numbers in the table. I usually will take the tables and add up a couple of rows and columns to make sure that they add up. Um, you know, people um, make mistakes all the time. They may use a prior version of the table or a figure um, and not submit the right one with the manuscript. So you really want to check that because um, that's that's critically important. Um, does the, do the results follow from the methods? Are there things that are described in the results were never mentioned in the methods? Because um, mm -hmm. that's not appropriate. And do the um, do the results make sense to you as a as a reader? Do they make sense to you clinically? Um, is this something that's useful to you? And then a discussion. You know, the discussion really um, should summarize the results and then place it into context with what else has been done before. And do, does the author do an adequate job of that? And you have to be, um, pay close attention to the discussion because is the discussion based upon the results that they have, or is it sort of take a leap of faith and say, well, um, I believe this when it has nothing to do with necessarily the results that they found in their experiment. So you really want to have the reviewer look carefully at that. And do their conclusions follow from the data or are they sort of going off on their own ideas of what the conclude, what the, what they would like the, the results to say when they in fact don't do that. Oftentimes we see a lot of spin where you have a randomized controlled trial and may have been for the primary outcome may be negative, but it shows some positive results for the secondary outcomes. Well, the authors can kind of like ignore the primary outcomes, emphasize the results of their secondary outcomes. You know, that's sort of the spin that authors sometimes do, and it's really not appropriate. Yeah, I, I definitely know exactly what you're talking about. And I think it's driven sometimes by their hypothesis and their prior uh, beliefs. And I think I really like that you're empowering the reviewer to say, hey, this isn't really what this showed. Let's actually assert what was showed. I also want to amplify what you said about spending a little bit of time double checking stuff because not that people are trying to be nefarious and introduce false data. It's more errors happen and people mess up columns and tables without realizing it and things like that. So I appreciate that, that piece of advice. Um, speaking of spin, the other place where I wondered if you could give a little thoughts on is a place that I spend a lot of time looking, which is the abstract. So do you feel like that's a part of the review that you uh, spend time on? And, and the, abstract is, the abstract is really critical because remember that we all do PubMed searches all day long. Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes that's the only part of the paper you'll read. And so you want to make sure that the abstract um, is complete and really conveys the, the essence of the paper and the results. You know, you oftentimes find what we call dataless abstracts where people don't actually put data into the results section of the abstract or they don't adequately describe the patient population or the, the measures that we use. So the abstract is really probably the most important part of the paper and something that certainly reviewers should look at. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I, I'm always really grateful when I have a reviewer who actually digs into the abstract and has some thoughts about that. So 
I'll encourage folks to think about that as they're reviewing. Um, let's say now you said read it through, let it percolate, do this more systematic look at it. And then how in general do you think it's best to organize one's thoughts when you're writing the review? Um, well, yeah. right. First of all, you know, there's most um, forms have two parts to them. Mm -hmm. One is the specific comments for the editors and one is the specific comments for the authors. So to the editor, you can be quite honest and, and say what you feel. You know, if you feel like the paper under no means should be um, accepted, so you can say that, but say why you think that way. Um, to the authors, you know, you want to be kind. You don't want to be arrogant. Mm -hmm. You want to be professional. Um, because your goal here for everybody, for the editors and for you as a reviewer, is to try to improve the science and make this a better paper. Mm -hmm. So really try to think of it in that way. If you're trying to help a friend with their paper or a, or a fellow with their paper, view it that way. You're trying to help this particular author make their paper better. So be, be kind in that way. And I would think the best way to, to write the review is to start off with what are your general comments? Okay. Are there sort of overarching comments that you want to make? Um, and then secondly, are there major flaws that you think are really need to be addressed? Um, are there issues there that that uh, the authors didn't, for example, you think use the right analyses? And so you point that out and say this needs to be changed. I think it's important, though, when you sort of talk about major flaws, is not to tell them this is the paper that they should have done. <laughs> or the, study, the study that they should have done. You know, this is the study they have, uh -huh. the study you have. So you have to sort of deal with what you have and, and the authors deal with what they have and try to help them make that paper better. So talking about what are the major flaws and how to fix them. Um, and then, and then sort of the minor flaws, mm -hmm. um, things that can be fixed. Now, all journalists have copy editors. Um, we have great copy editors for the Gemini work. And so I don't really worry about, um, specific typos or, or language. Um, the only typos I'm interested in are typos and figures and, and tables where, you know, the number might be wrong and that certainly needs to be corrected. Um, or they, they say something that a copy editor is not going to pick up. Um, but the sort of the, the language is not the, the best. Um, that's something the copy editors can work with. It's not really your job. Your job is to really work about the content and the science. I think that's really important because I do think sometimes people think they have to talk about the grammar and I want to liberate everybody from worrying about giving comments about grammar. I do sometimes, if there's a, a term that people are using that I think there's a different term that maybe is more correct, I will allude to that. Like for me, it's hypoxia versus hypoxemia, which right. means different things. But otherwise, I think liberating yourself from worrying about that is, a, is really good advice. Um, how long do you think an average review takes to do? I think that it probably is, should take a couple of hours. Um, you know, I think if you're doing it in a half an hour, you're probably not giving it enough enough time. On the other hand, um, you know, we're all busy, and I don't think anybody's really has time to spend six or eight hours on a review. So, I, you know, I think if you can give it a couple of solid hours to really look at it and write it up, I think that everyone will be grateful for that time spent. Yeah, I think that's nice because I think that helps in that decision to say yes. It's a couple hours of work, but but valuable work for all the reasons you said at the beginning. Now, I alluded earlier about like we don't learn about this. So I'm curious of what you think about the, the, the strategy of 
kind of co-reviewing or inviting a junior person to do a review with you and, and that process? I, I think for people like us that are more senior people that have postdocs and fellows, um, even residents working with us, I think that it's an important part of their education mm-hmm. that they need to learn how to review. And it's like anything in medicine, you do you learn by doing it. Um, so having them do the review um, and then you also do the review and then sit down with them afterwards and compare compare notes on the reviews um that's really the way to 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 teach people how to do reviews and it's really a critically important skill that people will need to have as they move on in their careers yeah and i would encourage the more senior folks who are listening to this podcast to to take that on as a a little bit of a challenge this is a great thing for us to do for the next generation of of folks in our careers uh, in our profession. So I actually really enjoy it. And I'm always surprised by the fact that when I do it with a, a junior colleague, they often see things that I didn't see. And I think my review is better because the two of us looked at it. Sure. I mean, they're going to probably spend more time than you. Um, <laughs> and, and they'll do it, with, you know, if given the chance, they'll do a really good job. And I think the other thing is to acknowledge to the editor that, you know, so-and-so helped you with the review so they can also get credit for that's a really good point. Thank you for, for highlighting that. Um, I've asked you a bunch of questions. I led with saying you have been an editor for, for many years for different journals now. Um, are there any other pearls that you feel like having you know worn that hat you want to share with folks listening? Well, I, I think that you know one of the things that to, to mention is what if you discover some problems like plagiarism or duplicate publication? Mm. Uh, one of my fellows emailed me um, this morning about a paper that she was reviewing for another journal and had had um, seen a similar paper um, by the same group of authors for another journal. Hmm. So it was not plagiarism. It was sort of more duplicate publication. Yep. And if you see that, then I think it behoves you to contact the editor and tell the editor what you found and then let the editor sort it out. Is this truly a duplicate publication or not? And then if you um, discover plagiarism, I mean, I think that's important. Now, many journals will put through, put the papers through a plagiarism detector mm-hmm. and the Jamma network will use something will authenticate. But if you feel like there's, there's major plagiarism here, that's another thing that you should tell the editor. Um, so these are ethical issues. And I think the final ethical issue is, this information is the author's intellectual property. And it's really important that you not steal their ideas. Though, you know, you've probably been chosen because you know something about that field. And that's why we choose somebody to be a reviewer. But it's also important to respect somebody's intellectual property and not steal their ideas. I I appreciate all of those. And it sounds like for the former ones where you might be like, I'm kind of wondering about what's going on here. Those are direct emails to the editor, not in your review process, but just reach out and say, I'm concerned about this. And the editor will greatly appreciate you bringing that to his or her attention. Yeah. Thank you for that advice. Um, I think in the last, I don't know how many minutes it's been a little bit of time together. We've covered a ton of territory around peer review and I'm, really hoping that folks after listening to this will feel empowered to kind of take on this opportunity and or um, partner with somebody to give them an opportunity to start being a part of peer review because it, it, it is a unique and really special part of what we do as academic faculty members in, in, in our different communities of scholarly work. And I think it's really just part of being a citizen in those communities to, to do peer reviews. It's, it's unpaid 
um, activity, but I think it's important. It can help you as well as help other people. I think that's a perfect way to end. So, Fred, I want to thank you so much for spending the time with me and our listeners today. I know that I learned and I'm sure they will learn as well. And I'll end by saying that if you want to listen to more episodes of Thrivecast, you can find them at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find them on the UW School of Medicine faculty website at faculty.udubmedicine.org. Thanks again for listening and have a wonderful day. Thank you.